0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 52, Pride Goeth Before, The Questionable Ascension of George McClellan, November 1st, 1861. Today's episode will cover the rise to power of General George McClellan, but also, in the process, how he sowed the seeds of a very great fall in time. We've briefly explored the beginnings of the Army of the Potomac. Whatever else it was, this was the army that McClellan built. He did not build from nothing, though he did build from ashes. And whatever else he did, and whatever faults he had, George McClellan built a very fine army. He was still a young man when the war started, only 35. But even at that, he was still baby-faced for an officer of his rank. For comparison, Joe Johnston struggled his whole life in the pre-war army to become a brigadier at age 53, and even that appeared unusual at the time and demanded a certain amount of politicking and a great deal of hard work. George McClellan's meteoric rise precluded all that, as well as a judicious amount of seasoning and life experience. Only three months prior, McClellan received command of the Ohio Volunteers. And yet we should not misunderstand in this moment that McClellan's position was all that unusual. Many other officers with far less experience went through the ranks shockingly fast. He differed only in degree, not in kind. Others commented on his youth, although very much in a congratulatory manner. Those who met General McClellan, either in Ohio or Washington, were struck by his young yet imposing figure. He had felled out a bit after marrying a year before and now seemed barrel-chested and full of vigor. He would have need of it after receiving fresh orders to report to Washington and take over command of the Army of Northeastern Virginia from General McDowell. This would become the greatest test of his life. And at first, at the least, he seemed to handle those responsibilities very well. As we've mentioned before, in the aftermath of Bull Run, the Army of Northeastern Virginia lost its head. At a time when Confederates pushed to within six miles of the capital just close enough for Washingtonians to see their outer works. Soldiers just left the camps at will. Officers and men alike got drunk and spent all day that way, as frequently and as thoroughly as possible, and in the main seemed to have utterly lost their heads. If Joe Johnston saw this, he might well have attacked, despite lacking the supply lines or the equipment to properly cross the river. But McClellan swept the soldiers clean out of the city, establishing a new style of order and discipline within days. That was not, however, his most significant contribution to the Army. That, instead, was his thoroughgoing review of Army leadership. Every officer, it seemed, from generals down to lieutenants, went to McClellan's selection board to prove they could do the job. That said, the boards ultimately only weeded out those obviously unable to perform their duties. Every officer in that army was either brand new to military life, or had just received several promotions and now had to learn new, much more difficult tasks. Even the best officers might encounter some difficulties and necessarily learn on the job. Not every regiment or brigade took quite as easily to hard-nosed army discipline. As an example, Philip Kearney had to take his officers to dinner and impress upon them that the honor of the army and country rested on their shoulders. His first attempt, a dressing down in the epic style of a military martinet, did no good. But the honey succeeded where the vinegar failed, in fact, and thereupon the outfit gave no trouble. That was an easy process in comparison to the 79th New York Highlanders. William Tecumseh Sherman had that regiment under his command, and evidently they didn't much care for the new style of discipline. One day they turned out and simply refused to drill, and marched out to demand a redress of their grievances. They saw this as an ordinary extension of their civilian rights. Sherman redressed those grievances by assembling as many army regulars as he could get in hand, and then promised to gun down the Highlanders if they didn't rethink their petition. They did, and the proud Highlanders suffered no worse than to have their colors removed for a month. The taste of steel wasn't the only side of forcing discipline on the army, though. Also these actions were only a bit out of the ordinary. Far away in Illinois, another officer named Ulysses Sam Grant had got himself assigned to put a rogue regiment into shape. He started matters by knocking down a rebellious soldier and basically hog-tying him. When half the regiment was too slow to get out of bed and out on the march, he started the march without him, and the stragglers were thus left racing to keep up. Now, as often in the Revolution, the army would find it had to inform as much as order. American soldiers often questioned why they were told to do certain things, and officers had better be able to explain. The American soldier would not obey as pure habit ingrained by fear of the lash, which they would not tolerate anyhow. But they would follow wherever properly led, and do all that military discipline required, if not more, as long as someone took the time to explain it. With fresh recruits pouring in, McClellans would require many more good officers to teach them. However, Although the selection boards removed the infirm or the incapable, it did not turn those left into the best. He therefore quickly established schools to train up the officer corps. It was no West Point, but broadly speaking, it did the job as well as anything could. Officers themselves had to figure things out in a hurry, and many of them went to school at night and tried their best to teach the soldiers what they had learned the following day. They might practice in amusing ways, too shouting to empty woods, or trying to drill soldiers until they themselves got confused and dismissed everyone in disorder. If there was a painful gap left over, it was that McClellan paid good attention to the abstract spirit of his men, but never properly to the life of the soldier. The camps, at first clean and orderly and laid out according to army guidelines, would rapidly become chaotic when soldiers went out on the road to battle, and many of the officers, so eager to learn the army business, did not entirely understand where the army itself remained ignorant, such as in matters of medicine, sanitation, and the proper care and feeding of soldiers. This is a very long side story that we must leave for another day. However, understand that bad hygiene literally cost lives, thousands of lives. Poor day-to-day camp management cost thousands of lives. The situation was so bad, and army bureaucracy so incompetent, that eventually Abraham Lincoln will effectively replace the Army's authority with that of the United States Sanitary Commission, a volunteer medical aid organization. Nonetheless, this particular force on the Potomac slowly turned from malaise to muscle. It would take experience with hard fighting to become a truly veteran outfit, of course, but it was quickly showing that it would indeed make that transition. To give it a new purpose, McClellan therefore renamed it the Army of the Potomac. If that renaming implies a more defensive role, that was partly in keeping with the immediate military needs. Washington, like Richmond, would become a vital military nerve center. In theory, neither city should have been that critical. During the American Revolution, for instance, the Continental Congress moved several times to avoid the British Army. However, 80 years of stability had made Washington seem permanent. Construction on the new Capitol building, including a much-improved replacement dome, still went on, and Lincoln insisted that it continue during the war. The nation, like the Capitol, lay carved open, a job half done. No matter how military advantageous, therefore, the government could not abandon Washington without appearing to abandon the war itself. As a military position, it had very little to recommend it. At least, however, all the important locations lay on the Maryland side of the Potomac, and therefore had the protection of the river. That barrier, however, did not stop McClellan from scouting the front lines in person. He and his staff frequently rode up to reconnoiter the rebel positions, in one memorable instance the whole lot hanging from a tree peering down downrange with binoculars. Unfortunately, the inexperienced McClellan saw much and understood little. Remember the infamous Quaker guns. That was the result of a timid stance adopted by the Army of the Potomac, which developed a bad habit of hesitating before scouting, and doing a poor job of it all around. Now we have seen how tricky and even dangerous scouting could be. The aftermath of Ball's Bluff shall cause some trouble in that department, too. The fundamental issue is that despite his energy, McClellan very quickly starts to dive into deep political waters, far beyond his maturity or understanding. He was a Democrat by family and inclination, not altogether different from former President Buchanan in class or opinions. He quietly, for the moment, favored leaving slavery intact, although not guaranteeing its extension. He could more or less accept the contraband policy of Burnside, but as the months progressed would rapidly come to favor an extremely conciliatory position on slavery. He hoped, in theory, to mollify the South and end the war on the basis of superior military might and accommodation. For the moment, so did President Lincoln, but we should pause to note that even here there was a gulf. Even relatively conservative-minded Republicans often viewed the war as a golden opportunity to enforce their full platform. That included, at a minimum, excluding slavery from the territories. And although many Republicans still shied away from open abolitionism, public sentiment was noticeably beginning to turn in that direction. To some degree, President Lincoln intended ultimately to shape and control this change rather than try to prevent it. Among other things, he was mindful of avoiding the accidental creation of a remorseless revolutionary struggle, to use McClellan's own later words on the matter. After all, the French Revolution killed many and eventually collapsed into Bonaparte's dictatorship, a real worry for Americans at the time. In fact, at the time of the Civil War, France was ruled by Napoleon III, who started as president of France and then seized power by state coup. At least for the moment, Lincoln also had to protect his conservative flank from radicals jumping far out in front. Missouri still smoldered, with a rebel army rampaging the West for one, and among other things General Fremont was making a political mess. That would cause Lincoln a considerable headache at this moment. However, the crucial state of Kentucky caused him even more anguish, and it still, months into the war, stubbornly refused to arm in earnest, instead calling for an end to the fighting and compromise. Or perhaps state leaders had already chosen in their hearts, but clung to the illusion of peace, knowing that their sons would die in both armies. In either case, Lincoln temporized and delayed action on slavery, and General McClellan had no problem with this. And that actually brings up the beginning of that unfortunate case of General Stone. Stone did no wrong, according to army discipline. He had his orders from McClellan. In the specific, after delivering a message that the soldiers ought not go stirring up trouble among the local slave population in Maryland, which again, was a loyal state, slaveholding or otherwise, well, a regiment from Massachusetts did just that. They may have been morally justified in hiding fugitive slaves, but they also directly violated army rules and were taking political matters into their own hands. General Stone necessarily had to rebuke them as a matter of army discipline. Righteous or not, well-intentioned or not, the soldiers had committed actual crimes, and that could not be permitted to go unaddressed. Unfortunately, it did not end there. The offended regimental officers wrote their state governor, who complained to Stone about the treatment of his soldiers and his regiment. Remember that most of the army was, in fact, state militia seconded to national service. Basically, all the members of a regiment, and often whole brigades, came from one state. As often as not, they were neighbors and their officers, local notables, and civic leaders. These men were politically connected, and could make trouble if they so chose. To Stone's dismay, they so chose. Moreover, the governor of Massachusetts did not merely keep his complaints to private correspondence with General Stone, which in itself went a bit far. He also did not keep the matter to a private talk with the Lincoln administration, either. Instead, he complained to Senator Charles Sumner, that inveterate foe of slavery, who then publicly shamed General Stone from the floor of Congress, which he ought not to have done. Thus the background of Ball's Bluff, and General Stone's public destruction thereafter. And yet the Radicals were not really after Stone at the time. His career was merely a bonus. They really wanted to make McClellan do their bidding. At the moment, that meant pushing more action on slavery and more movement against the Confederate Army. As the summer's heat began to wane, Radicals wanted rapid movement and aggressive action. Now, for clarification, Lincoln wanted progress as well, but he was less impressed with the idea of a bloody assault against rebellion that the Radicals desired. He didn't need a big victory now, but he did want McClellan to start moving up and pressuring the rebel army nearby. The Radicals put ending slavery as the first goal, with the idea that this would destroy the rebellion. Lincoln hoped to destroy the rebellion, and believed that slavery would decline thereafter. But in addition, carrying on from our discussing of revolutions and their consequences, the Radicals... Tended to assume, much like parliamentarians in the English Civil War and the revolutionaries in France believed, that extreme action would tend to produce their desired outcomes. There was some truth in all of these cases. But again, revolutions cannot easily be guided where convenient, and they contain costs. President Lincoln, even as he suspended habeas corpus, worried about the corrosive effect on law and democracy. And as we'll see, General McClellan had his own failings on both points. In any case, McClellan would have neither an advance against the rebels nor a sudden blood and iron fill assault against them. Having promised swift action when he rode to Washington, he soon found that seemingly nothing could be done in short order. The Rebs were too numerous, too well-equipped, and too aggressive to challenge immediately. And to make perfectly clear, he was neither alone nor without allies in this fight, half-military and half-political in the fashion that civil wars tend to produce the Lower North still contributed Democrats to Congress, not Republicans. And Democrats controlled many great urban political machines throughout the country, including most of the political levers in New York. McClellan, in this hour, began to make some very valuable connections, and he could, in effect, lobby the administration just as radical Republicans did. Had it stopped there, that might have been quite acceptable, both to President Lincoln and history. It did not stop there. Even in western Virginia, McClellan's private correspondence with his wife had already edged towards the prideful side. This was forgivable. He had risen quite high and achieved great success. But the tone of his writing after the call to Washington took on an unsavory aspect. I receive letter after letter, have conversation after conversation, calling on me to save the nation, alluding to the presidency, dictatorship, etc., he wrote. Although he did deny such ambitions, For the moment, he certainly felt a great sense of purpose and even divine guidance. In an age when praying for God's grace was common, McClellan brought a questionable arrogance to his prayers. He appeared to believe that God had placed the fate of the country in his personal hands, and this would play into some of his most questionable decisions. Before we get into that, we should understand another player in this game. Edwin M. Stanton. Remember that name, because he is important. Stanton, like McClellan, was a Democrat, and had in fact joined the Buchanan administration in his last months as Attorney General. For the moment, he kept busy writing to McClellan, cursing the new Lincoln administration for its one-sided Republican policies. There is a deep irony to this, because not only was Lincoln trying very hard to keep Republicans and Democrats from tearing the country apart, again, but also trying to prevent them from merely ruining the war effort with petty squabbling. Stanton engaged in a lot of petty squabbling. The greater irony, however, is that not only will Stanton soon join the Lincoln administration, but he will turn right around and switch to support all the policies he now opposed twice as fervently. His views changed very rapidly once he got inside and had to make some tough decisions for himself. In addition to carping about politics, however, Stanton specifically tended to push McClellan towards egotism and democratic politics, traits they already shared. He also pushed McClellan towards hatred of Lincoln, perhaps poisoning the well. Stanton knew Lincoln, although not very well. The two of them had met in the course of their law work. Edwin Stanton, a well-heeled eastern lawyer, whip-smart but narrow-minded, had nominally cooperated on a railroad case with Abraham Lincoln. Unfortunately, Stanton could never understand how a country boy like Lincoln might also be whip-smart, because his heels weren't so well polished. Among other things, Stanton probably invented and applied a rather nasty nickname for the tall, lanky Lincoln, the original gorilla. Well, Lincoln was president, and Stanton was not. But Lincoln heeded the words of General-in-Chief Winfield Scott as much as McClellan, and that led to McClellan's key mistake. Almost from the first moment, McClellan took the course of pride urged on him by Stanton and others. He began to bypass Scott's desk on matters great and small. General Scott, whatever his physical weakness in this year, still had a seasoning that McClellan lacked. In fact, both men had some weaknesses in their understandings of modern strategy. McClellan correctly saw that General Scott had retreated into a hidebound view of the wars and campaigns he had fought in the past, when time, circumstance, and technology had clearly marched on. But Scott could also see just as clearly that McClellan's understanding of strategy was rather limited. It was McClellan's intelligence and energy he wanted at the head of the Army of the Potomac. He wanted a man who could learn, not a man who thought he knew everything. McClellan never seems to have understood that. So McClellan began to keep vital day-to-day information from Scott. In normal peacetime affairs, this would have resulted in a quick rebuke. In a time of civil war, it became a question of an aging officer who would have had difficulty managing a desk this large even in his prime versus a younger, stronger man. If Scott ever had a weakness, it lay in managing politics. And if McClellan ever had a strength, it was in his deft ability to coordinate political affairs. He communicated directly to Lincoln, cut Scott out of the picture, and in this he was supported by a coterie of sympathetic senators, mostly Republicans, who believed that Scott was hindering aggressive action, and who did not yet understand that it was McClellan who stood in the way. And they understood this because McClellan told them. So McClellan essentially wedged Scott out of office, first de facto, and then de jure. Stanton personally urged this course on in correspondence, painting Scott as a mindless old fool, a characterization which McClellan eagerly adopted. In letters to his wife, The man who formerly adored Scott now privately sneered at him as a doter or a traitor and saying, The people call upon me to save the country and cannot respect anything that stands in the way. Note again, while McClellan really did receive many public thanks for his services, he completely and implicitly dismissed the idea that anyone else also might receive such praise. He also envisioned himself as the only man actively doing anything and ignored that others might also have a say in affairs. Lincoln hesitated before taking the next step. The problem was, the only candidate to fill the place of General Scott was George McClellan. Lincoln saw problems in this, and pointed out to McClellan that trying to take on this role and perform as the commander of the Army Potomac at the same time was, at a bare minimum, a rather weighty combination of tasks. Draw on me for all the sense I have and all the information. In addition to your present command, the supreme command of the army will entail a vast labor upon you, he wrote. McClellan boldly claimed in response, I can do it all. Yet in reality, Lincoln had no alternative. He must promote someone to fill the role, and McClellan was apparently the best available. Scott's personal and preferred choice had been General Henry Halleck half-mocked and half-respected as old brains. He wasn't that old, but seemed more mature than his age of 45. Unfortunately, history would show that he was no better than McClellan. and in any case, Lincoln did not know him at all yet. The somewhat awkward point lay in that Halleck wasn't available. He was traveling back from far off California. Scott tried to hold on to his position until he could work Halleck inside, but it was not to be. Winfield Scott long-standing public servant that he was, quietly and sadly tendered his resignation on November 1st. McClellan immediately accepted the role when offered by the president. McClellan at least had the good grace to show public honor to his chief when Scott departed Washington with the comforts of New York. This seemed to mollify Scott somewhat. Still, he knew exactly who lay behind his fall from station. Had he been a different man, McClellan might have reflected on some of Scott's last words to him. When I proposed that you should come here to aid me, you had my friendship and confidence. You still have my confidence. But then, if he was a different man, it probably wouldn't have been required. As a coda, Winfield Scott would live to see the end of the war, and more importantly, the return of peace. Though some of his Virginian relatives seemingly never forgave him, he remains one of the greatest Americans to this day, though often overlooked. In his time, he proved a man remarkably capable in war, but never one to rush to it. A Whig of long-standing inclination, he showed his peace making side when negotiating with the British regarding the Pig War. And though faulty, he also left the rough draft blueprint of future Union strategy with his Anaconda Plan. General-in-Chief Winfield Scott would become the first of the great leaders to leave the stage in the Civil War. He would by no means be the last. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.